Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Hello, and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Ken Sullivan. Today I'll be teaching from the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy chapter 5, reading from the New International Version. So let's begin. I'm reading verses 1 and 2. Do you... Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So Paul is giving just some general directions of conduct in the church here. And these are some very important instructions on how those with authority uh, should use that authority in respect those under their leadership. First of all, Paul says, don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him or entreat him like you would your own father. Uh, in other words, as you are given this authority over the church, this is to pastors and elders and, and those who are ministers in the church and those who have been given positions of leadership. Uh, Paul wants those who are exercising leadership to temper that leadership and uh, not abuse their uh, not abuse their authority to to be sensitive to the people that they're that they're leading not to lord it over them but but to be sensitive. Don't rebuke an older man. Uh, remember that older people are due respect just by virtue of their age. Then he said, treat younger men that is those who are closer to your own age. Treat them like brothers. Treat the older men like fathers. Treat the younger men like brothers. Treat the older women like mothers, like you would your own mother, with the deepest respect. And then treat the younger women like sisters with all purity. So those who are in leadership have actually opportunity to abuse their authority or to do good with that authority. And so Paul is setting out the guidelines of how to operate in the church um, using that authority as God would have us to use it. He says, don't look at your sisters, at least he's implying not to look at uh, your sisters, those who are in the church, the young women, as uh, sex objects. Um, just as you not wouldn't look at your own sister that way or your own daughter that way. So have the mindset that those who are under my leadership, the, uh, the ladies who are under my leadership, the older ones are like my mother, the young ones are like my sisters, and I should deal with them in absolute purity. Um, people shouldn't have to worry about the pastor or the ministers in the church going after their daughters, or, or brothers in the church shouldn't have to worry about those who are ministers going after their wives. It really does damage to a church when those who are leadership abuse that leadership. So Paul is putting in these guidelines uh, to protect the church and to protect those who are in leadership and certainly to protect those who are under that leadership. Pastors, elders, evangelists, ministers, 
Anyone who is in leadership should treat everyone else under their authority with the proper respect. Now I'm reading verses three and four. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. And so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. So Paul is giving some uh, information, vital information about how to deal with the widows in the church who are on the relief road, those who, who have need. They're widows, and, and certainly in their culture, um, very often widows were left destitute. If their, if their uh, husband died, uh, then they didn't have much. And, and so the church had to take up the slack. There were no uh, safety net programs. There, were no, there was no welfare um, during that time in the Roman Empire. So the church had the responsibility of feeding and caring for the destitute widows. Paul is establishing some really strict guidelines for the relief and the care of, of, of widows. Paul said that widows with children or grandchildren should rely on them for their support and, and not put that burden on the church. Um, caring for parents and grandparents demonstrates faith. Caring for those that are dependent upon you, uh, it demonstrates faith. It is part of the Christian faith. Uh, it, it is demonstrating responsible Christian character. And it repays them for what they have done in the past for us, our mothers, our fathers, our, our, our grandparents, uh, if they've cared for us, uh, then when they become old, then it's our responsibility to help them if we can. Now, certainly that was a rule back in the Roman Empire, because again, there was no uh, welfare program. There was no kind of social safety net that would care for people who were destitute in those days. So it all went upon the church and it fell upon the church and the church had limited resources. So they had to have some really strict guidelines as to how they would um, distribute those resources. True religion, Paul is telling us, true religion is humanitarian. Uh, it has to do with love and it has to do with care and it, and it demonstrates justice. So we can't have this so-called personal Christianity where it doesn't touch anybody. Uh, we, if we are Christians, we have responsibility to those who are in need around us. James chapter one, verse 27 in the New Living Testament says, pure and genuine, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. That's pure and genuine religion. It's caring for those who are that you are responsible for. It's refusing to allow the world to corrupt you with his ways. Now, let's look at verses five through seven. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. So Paul talks about two kinds of widows, uh, those who are dedicated to God and the church and those who give themselves over to sensual pleasure. Paul said, 
Widows with no relatives should depend on God by praying and seeking him continuously. He says night and day, they should be prayer warriors. If the church supports them, uh, then they should be prayer warriors. They should, they should render service to the church. They should uh, minister. They should uh, pray continually. They should be those who uh, stand on the wall and, and watch over the church, bathe the church in prayer. That's their responsibility if the church is going to care for them. That's how they should devote themselves, that is, being women of prayer, prayer warriors. Secondly, Paul says widows who received aid from the church had to pledge to devote themselves to prayer and worship, to worship through uh, prayer and, and uh, seeking after God for help night and day. That's their responsibility. Uh, they may not have a secular job. Uh, they're dependent upon the church. And so the thing that uh, can help the church the most is, is prayer and, and dedicated service to the church. Paul said widows who live for pleasure are displeasing to God. He says they're dead even while they live. They're trying to get their groove on instead of seeking God. And so Paul is saying that these widows are not worthy to be on the relief rolls. Now let's look at verses 8 through 10. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the large people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So uh, caring for dependent, immediate family members is a matter of faith. It's a demonstration of our faith. And Paul said those who do not do that, do not carry out their responsibility toward their loved ones who are in need, uh, have denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So faith is proven or demonstrated by taking care of immediate dependent family members. I just want to reiterate that. Christians who dodge their responsibility are denying their faith by their actions. Paul says they are worse than unbelievers, again, and, and worse than infidels. Because resources, the church's resources, were limited, and there were so many people in need, Paul is giving these guidelines for assistance to the, to the widows, and, and, and it sounds strict, but uh, you have to be strict when you have uh, a lot of needs and limited resources. So Paul wanted to make sure that the resources that they had to care for these destitute widows went as far as it possibly could and wasn't wasted on those um, who were had not proven themselves worthy of it. So Paul said that those who are worthy of assistance should have, have a should have a, a a reputation and a track record of having served and done good deeds uh, during their Christian life during the years when they could. Widows who received aid from the church had to be sixty years old. The reputation, having been a faithful wife and full of good deeds. And Paul laid out the things that they should do in that culture. Feet washing was a big thing because people walked where they went and they wore sandals and it was a, a dusty, dry climate. And so washing their feet was a, a special 
courtesy and a kindness that uh, people showed to each other. It was a way of showing humility as well. Paul mentioned feet watching in verse 10. So uh, again, that was a custom of their day. Today, we can uh, demonstrate humility by serving in many ways. Uh, we don't walk where we go, uh, not very often and not very far. We wear shoes and not sandals, and we, most of us don't live in dusty climates. So feet washing as a practice is not as practical as it was. Now, certainly, there are those who still hold, hold to that tradition and and they wash people's feet to, uh, to demonstrate um, humility because the Lord uh, commanded it. And I think that that's good and that's okay. Um, but as a, as a custom, as a practical need, uh, we don't have that need anymore. Now, verses 11 through 13, as for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So uh, Paul is pretty direct. He's pretty straightforward. And his, his language, uh, his words may be offensive to some people, but Paul is saying, don't put young widows on the list. Uh, we can't afford to take care of them because they may make a vow uh, of dedication to the church to be prayer warriors and to give themselves to prayer and service to the church. But, but when their sensual desires take hold, Paul, Paul is saying, they will uh, usually walk away from that vow that they made, that, uh, that, that vow of service to the church and devotion and dedication and prayer. And so when they break that vow, then they bring condemnation on themselves. So Paul says, don't put them on the list of widows. Uh, but he goes on to say they should marry and have children. So he's just being practical here. The sensual desires of youth will, will eventually, Paul says, cause them to want to marry. And, uh, and so he's heading this off. Paul warned the young widows um, that they would likely become idle and busybodies and engaging in meaningless talk. So um, certainly uh, Paul was in a position to, to judge that uh, and to base it upon his, his own experience in this matter. Now let's look at verses 14 through 16. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. So Paul is spelling out the reason that he's being so strict about this. Uh, the church can only help those widows who are really in need. And in fact, uh, the more widows that are on the roll, uh, the thinner the resources are stretched. So um, Paul is saying those who have um, believing, those widows who have uh, believing children or grandchildren, they should, they should uh, take care of them. 
They should not leave that burden on the church. Believing that the younger widows were not ready to completely pledge themselves to prayer, Paul suggested get married again. Uh, they should get married. They should have families and go on because he understands that they're going to want to marry anyway down the road. Uh, if they get uh, become a, a widow at a young age uh, and they try to dedicate themselves, the outcome will be the same. They'll probably uh, get married anyway. Young widows should avoid the kind of lifestyle that gives the devil uh, ammunition to slander them, Paul is saying, that they should live a, a godly lifestyle. Paul knew of some widows who had already fallen into Satan's trap and, uh, and turned away from the faith. So uh, knowing by experience what could happen and knowing by experience what usually happened, uh, Paul is is making these guidelines and advising the church on how to handle younger wid or widows and older widows, 60 years old or older. He urged the women of the church to care for the widows in their own families, the younger women. And of course, the men were responsible as well. But Paul is speaking to the women there uh, that they should take care of their own uh, widows, their own elderly people. Now, of course, they didn't have nursing homes and they didn't have uh, those kind of facilities. And again, they didn't have the government resources to care for them. So that burden fell upon the church and the church had to uh, figure out the best way and the most efficient way uh, to care for the most people that it could without uh, wasting resources. Now, let's look at verses 17 through 18. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. But scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. The New Living Translation says, elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. Now, honor includes high regard, it includes esteem, and it includes monetary remuneration, what we call honorarium. So uh, those who are ministers who work in the gospel and, and, and their work is to do the work of the ministry, um, the Bible says that they should be paid well for what they do. Show your ministers how much you value them by paying them well, especially the ones, Paul said, who preach and teach. Ministers do a very important job that has temporal as well as eternal benefit. So they should be paid well for what they do, and they should, be, they should have at least the respect that we give to corporate leaders. Uh, and actually more so. So Paul is putting these things in proper order. Now verses 19 through 20. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you ought to, you ought to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. So Jewish law says... Uh, two witnesses, at least two witnesses are required before an accusation against a person is pursued. Ministers deserve the same consideration as anyone else. So 
anyone just walking around making an accusation against an elder uh, should be careful about that. Um, elders should be dealt with if two or more witnesses are, are making an accusation against them. Paul says, unless there are at least two witnesses, uh, any accusation brought against an elder should not even be entertained. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 in the New Living Testament says, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So that's just fair and practical uh, because one person can make up a story and you can get two people to, to make up a story, but it's a lot less likely. That's what happened with Jesus. The witnesses tried to get together uh, to condemn him, but when you got more than one witness together, their, uh, their lies uh, didn't coordinate. They couldn't get their, their fact, their lies together to condemn him. They, their lies contradicted each other. So um, it's better, in fact, it's demanded that uh, uh, no accusation be brought against an elder unless there are at least two witnesses. It's good to keep your eyes and ears open for that second witness. But uh, no one should be judged guilty unless there are two witnesses because anyone can slander people and uh, damage somebody's reputation. Elders, of course, who were found to be sinning, Paul said, should be reproved publicly. Um, they should be corrected publicly if they were found to be guilty of sinning by those two or more witnesses um, they were not to be mollycoddled. They were to be dealt with publicly as a warning to others. Don't do this because it's going to be dealt with. That's, uh, that's church government. So we have the authority to, to, uh, to exercise church government when um, there are problems in the leadership. Now let's look at verses 21 through 23. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Christ Jesus, and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Uh, discrimination is a terrible sin. Uh, racial discrimination, it's a terrible sin, and people just uh, smooth over it like it's, uh, you know, just like a, um, a meaningless sin that it doesn't mean much, but discrimination is a terrible thing because it breaks trust and confidence. Um, there's a struggle with the minorities in this in this nation uh, over respect for for law in a lot of areas because they've been so discriminated against. The law uh, has not been fairly applied, and so there is sort of a suspicion. Um, toward law enforcement because of a history of discrimination. Um, so discrimination in the church should not be tolerated at all. It is a terrible, terrible sin. We should deal with people in an even-handed way. James chapter 2 and verse 9 says, But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Paul said in Romans 2.11, But God does not show favoritism. And then while preaching to the Gentiles for the first time, Peter said, I now realize 
how true it is that God does not show favoritism. That's in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So those who have authority, the authority of leadership, must be very careful not to show favoritism. We shouldn't do it in the church. As parents, we shouldn't do it. We should, we should love our children and show them the same um, courtesy, uh, the same consideration. We shouldn't hold one up over the other because it creates problems, it creates resentment, it creates mistrust, it makes a mess of things. You know, the very reason that the first deacons were appointed was to correct the problem of discrimination in the church. Uh, we were just talking about widows and, and uh, taking care of widows. Well, there was, a, there was discrimination. There was a charge of discrimination between the, the Hebrew Jews and the Grecian Jews over uh, the administration of the, of the food to their widows. They felt that the, the Hebrews were discriminating against the Greek Jews. And so they had to bring in uh, seven men of honest report who were full of the Holy Ghost who had a reputation of not discriminating. And they had to establish that before they could bring order and trust in the church. So this thing of discrimination, people treat it with a cavalier attitude, but it is a terrible thing. It's a terrible sin to discriminate and it creates all kind of habit in the church. Um, church law, church discipline, Church leadership, it should be distributed without consideration to a person's race or color or any of that thing. Uh, if, you're, if you're operating a church that has a, um, diversity, a diverse group of people, different racial backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds, uh, then there should be opportunity for, for leadership for those who are of different ethnic backgrounds. The, uh, the leadership should reflect the congregation. And that's the same way it should be in this country. The leadership in this country should, should reflect the population. There should be uh, a diversity in this country of people who are in leadership and certainly in the church. Discrimination is corrupt and unjust. It misrepresents God and it contradicts the message and the person of Jesus Christ. Our Congress can't do the work of the people because some of them are bought and paid for by lobbyists and, 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 and they give large donations to their campaigns. And so uh, they can't be trusted because uh, they sold themselves out. And so we have to be careful to be even-handed in the way that we do things. Uh, we are having problems with trust and leadership because of discrimination in this country. Uh, and because of, of compromise for money. God's ministers must maintain their integrity and impartiality as they carry out the work of God in this earth. Now, let's look at verse 22. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Laying on of hands in this context has to do with appointing or, or confirming uh, church leaders. That's what laying on of hands had to do with. Um, the NLT says, never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. The King James says, suddenly lay hands on no man. Now that has nothing, to, that's not talking about laying them on for prayer. 
not talking about laying them on uh, to anoint them in, in oil, uh, to try to heal them or whatever. It's talking about laying on hands to confirm them in a place of leadership and authority. And, and the Bible is saying, don't be quick about doing that. Laying on hands in prayer is part of church custom when setting in ministers and church leaders. Take time to examine people's lives, the Bible tells us, and examine their fruit before making them leaders. Even those seven deacons that were set in, they had to have had a reputation of being honest, uh, of being full of the Holy Ghost and having wisdom. So before uh, any minister, any leader should be set in place, you have to uh, take account of his fruit, his conduct. Is he an honest person? Is he full of the Holy Spirit? Does he have wisdom? Is he faithful to the church? Does he support the church financially, he or she? And so uh, these are considerations that take time to examine. Uh, as a pastor, I had people coming to me and claiming to be ministers. And when, when I pioneered our church, I pioneered it from scratch. And so as our church began to grow a little, there would be people coming and they would join the church and they would come and say that they were ministers. And, uh, you know, um, being young in the ministry and learning my way, I would set them in based on their confession. They claimed that they were ministers. So, in fact, I thought they could be a good help to me in the ministry. But, you know, I found out that most of those people who claimed to be ministers were undisciplined. They had major character flaws. Uh, they were not faithful. They wouldn't support the church with their, with their finances. They weren't fit to be leaders. Um, they needed to be following. And so I had to dismantle my whole leadership team and start all over again and set up some guidelines and timelines. And that's what Paul is saying here now. He's saying, uh, don't, don't be quick to appoint people to, to leadership. Uh, the ministers in the church represent God, but they also represent the pastor. So when pastors knowingly appoint Sinful leaders, they share in the sins of those leaders. That's what Paul said. Uh, don't lay hands quickly on anyone. Don't appoint or commit anyone to leadership quickly without taking time. And also he said, uh, don't share in anyone's sins. And this is what he's meaning here. We are responsible for those that we set in leadership position. The responsibility falls on us. When God put Aaron's sons over the priesthood, he warned them that they were responsible for offenses against the priesthood. That's in Numbers 18 and 1. Part of protecting the flock is taking special care in choosing leadership because those leaders are going to be ministering to the body. And if they're not fit leaders, they're going to contradict uh, your vision. They're going to contradict your words, they'll, they'll contradict you, and ultimately, uh, sinful leaders will turn against leadership and give you more headache than they, uh, than they will give you help. Now, verse 23, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. This was just some practical advice. Wine was used for its medicinal qualities. So in essence, Paul was saying to Timothy, Son, take your medicine. You know you're sick, you have these problems, 
with your stomach, take your medicine, and, uh, uh, and then you'll do better, of course. So, you know, there are some Christians who think they're compromising their faith if they take medicine. My advice is to pray and take your medicine, just like Paul is saying here. Don't go to the doctor and waste his time, have him to prescribe you medication, and then you come back home and, and you're afraid to take it or it feels condemned to take it. Um, take your medicine. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy here. Now, verses 24 and 25. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Paul is saying, keep doing what's good and right. Your good deeds will eventually rise up and bring you honor, even though people may not see it. And it may seem that you're not getting any accolades, any respect for the good that you're doing. Uh, but first of all, make sure you're doing it with the right attitude and the right motivation. Do what you do out of love, or the Bible says it's just clanging bell or tinkling cymbal. It's worthless. So do what you do out of love, but also do what you do, the good that you do, knowing that God is going to honor you for it. He hasn't forgotten you. You'll get around to honoring you for the good that you do. Just as your sins will eventually come out, in the same way your good deeds will come out and they will praise you. Okay? So don't be weary in doing well. Keep on doing, for in due season you're going to reap if you don't faint. Well, that brings us to the end of 1 Timothy chapter 5. In our next teaching through the Bible session, we'll cover chapter six. Friend, if you live in the Indianapolis area, I'd like to invite you to come visit us at New Direction Church, where my son, Kenneth Sullivan Jr., is the pastor. Uh, our East Campus is located at the corner of 86th and uh, 38th and Hawthorne. And our North Campus is located at the corner of 86th and Hague Road. I hope to see you at one of our services. Now, until next time, I want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, may God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune in to our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast. Trust you've enjoyed this teaching. I want you to know that my book, Teach Me About Heaven, it's available on Amazon.com or you can get it at www.emergecurriculum.com.